0: your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8. You're using a pew Bible, page 1201. And while you're getting there, let me just add my voice to encourage you with regard to Summit Bible Church. I was speaking this past week with with jeremy and he was just really praising god for all that the lord is doing there in fontana and in particular for how god is using this body in support of that new church plant based upon the the survey work the door-to-door survey work that we have been doing they now at summit bible church have been able to start one home bible study with unbelievers And another one is going to begin this Tuesday. So already now, they've been there, what, six weeks? And they have two home Bible studies going and hope and desire and plans to to begin many more. And so as we're there going door to door, we are just like a multiplier effect on that church planting team. There are six on the team, six couples in that team, and, and they are spending many nights, Saturdays, Sundays themselves. But when we turn out and when we went out couple of weeks ago, Jim, we had almost 80 people here, and so we sent out about 40 teams, and we were able to greatly multiply the impact on the community there and, and able to sift through more than a thousand homes, and that's all we're doing when we go out. We're just sifting. We're, we're going to the door. We're introducing ourselves. We have a series of questions to ask, and they're all designed to just elicit whether there may be any interest on their part of either attending or hosting an investigative Bible study with regard to who is Jesus Christ. And it's incredible that there are two studies now already begun, and we pray that many more will come. And so your ministry is effective. It's effective. So today, this afternoon, if you have already been through the training, you can pick up your clipboard after service out on the patio. You need a partner, go out in teams of two. If you've never been or don't have a partner, come at 2 o'clock for the training time Pick up your partner and we'll go. Beloved, God is blessing. God is blessing our efforts. One other just announcement, and I was going to have Vincent make this announcement in the third person, but we decided I would just go ahead and make it for him. And that is this Saturday, we are going to pull him through a knot hole. It's called ordination. We are going to conduct an ordination exam of Pastor Vincent here, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. sharp. So the Colosseum doors will open about 8.30, and you can file in for that delightful experience. No, I'm just teasing him because it's fun to tease, particularly when I've been through it so long ago I don't remember anymore. But he's asked me to be one of his examiners, and I am really looking forward to that. I have the privilege of examining him in the area of church history and systematic theology. And I've been thinking about this. And I have now boiled it all down to one question. I have one question that I am going to ask him on Saturday morning when I have my opportunity, and it will encapsulate all of church history and all of systematic theology in one question. And he will have 40 minutes to answer it. So come (laughs) with appropriate Bible support, by the way. Yes. So you come and you support our brother here in this great endeavor. You know, ordination is a lifetime experience. And it's a good thing because you wouldn't probably survive it if you had to do it twice. But no, it is, it is the public affirmation of the call of God on a man's life that he has called him and that he has equipped him for a lifetime of ministry. And so you come, you, you support our brother, you pray with him this week as he finishes out his studies and preparation. There'll be a luncheon to follow. We want you to be here for the luncheon as well, but we need to know how many hamburgers to cook. So please indicate if you're coming, call the church office or call the church office and let us know so we have an appropriate number of hamburgers afterwards. All right? How many of you are coming? Come on. All right. The rest of you, God knows who you are. About 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, former head football coach at the University of Colorado, a man by the name of Bill McCartney, began a parachurch ministry called Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers. And, and that ministry was designed to combat spiritual lethargy among men. The movement was called Promise Keepers because it stressed the idea that men needed to make and keep a series of promises that would enable them to relate spiritually and responsibly to God and to others. And so there were a series of seven promises that a promise keeper would make. The movement began relatively modestly but took off like wildfire and it really overtook America, at least in the evangelical world. It grew dramatically until there were stadium events and rallies all over the United States. It it basically had about a 10-year ascent. Then the movement fell on some hard times and has diminished to the place where you don't really hear very much about it anymore. It is still around. They still do conduct a few events, but nothing like in those early years, a very heady years for that movement at its core the movement had a fundamental flaw there was a fundamental flaw associated with the movement of promise keepers and that flaw was that people do not relate to god based on their promises to him we relate to god based on his promises to us and that beloved is a world of difference It is not what you have promised God, it is what God has promised you. And the most fundamental of those promises appear in the twelfth chapter of the book of Genesis, which I read for you earlier in this service. That passage, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 and running through verse 3 or beyond, is what is frequently and commonly known as the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic covenant and that seed covenant and it is enlarged and expanded in chapter 15 and chapter 17 contains the eternal expression of the will of God as he relates to humanity. It is the foundational covenant by which God relates to every single one of his children. For 1,500 years, God chose to temporarily administer the promises of that Abrahamic covenant through the law given to Moses at Sinai. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant as it is commonly known, was an administrative covenant. That is that it was the means by which the blessings and promises of Genesis 12 were mediated to the people of God. But with the coming of Messiah, God now administers the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant through the indwelling ministry of His Holy Spirit. That is how we now receive the promises and blessings of that Abrahamic covenant. We are no longer related to it Through the Old Covenant, through the Mosaic Covenant, we are related now through the New Covenant, through the indwelling ministry of the very Spirit of God. Now that should not shock anyone and certainly should not have shocked those early believers because God had foretold, he had prophesied 600 years before the abrogation of the Old Covenant that indeed it would be going away. The prophets spoke six centuries before Christ, telling the people that the old covenant would be put away and that the new covenant would come and that the sign of that new covenant would be the gift of the Holy Spirit of God who would reside within. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to briefly look with you at this new covenant. The means by which God administers his blessings and his promises of that, of that foundational Abrahamic covenant. And I want to do it by looking at four promises together. And we're doing this to set ourselves up spiritually, as it were, to come to the Lord's table. That's the purpose of our time together this morning. We could preach a month of sermons on each individual point today and, and there's no time to do that. So necessarily we will be brief. We are looking only or going to be looking only at a skeleton form of these promises. And my hope for you is by doing this is that I will whet your appetite. And that you will go back yourself and examine some of these and that you will think on them, you will meditate on them today, this morning, right now, in this time, and the Lord would use that to help prepare your heart and mind. To come to the table together. So are you ready? Four promises. Four promises that are embodied in the new covenant. So that our hearts might be prepared to celebrate communion together. The first promise appears for us in verse 10. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. And the promise are given to you in the back of your worship folder, by the way. I've got them listed for you there if you want to follow along and keep track. The first promise is of an inner desire, not outward compulsion. Promise number one, listed for us here, is a promise of inner desire, not outward compulsion. Listen to the Word of God. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make... ...with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Stop right there. Under the Old Covenant, the law of God was written on tablets of stone, right? It was written on tablets of stone inscribed by the very finger of God there in the summit of Mount Sinai given to Moses, the great lawgiver who brought them down from the mountain to the people. God related to his people, the ancient people Israel through his law inscribed on tablets of stone. That is that the law was external to them. It was external to them. Now the writer tells us here under the new covenant that the law no longer remains external it is no longer engraved on tablets of stone and no longer sits as judge above us but it has now been internalized within us the law of god is now internal within us into our very hearts and our very minds look again at verse 10 i will put it into their minds i will write it upon their hearts this is Hebrew synonymous, parallelism, heart and mind, just speaking about the totality of their being. The law of God now resides within us, within the totality of our being, who we are. We now embody it. We are His people. We are His people. It no longer sits external to us. It is now inside us. It is no longer an outward compulsion To which the death penalty applied in certain cases. It is now the inner desire of our heart to know and do the the word of God. We now live in a time when the people of God do what they're supposed to do. Not because they're supposed to do it, but because they want to do it. We obey God today because we want to. Because we want to, because he has placed within us that kind of desire. And the prophet says here in verse 10, and by the way, this is, this is all, you, your Bible probably sets it out this way in its, in its font and its type, probably all caps, small caps, setting out the fact that this is a citation coming out of the Old Testament. This is actually drawn from Jeremiah chapter 31, that great Old Testament passage speaking about the coming new covenants. God's law now becomes a person's desire. And indeed, that is the very essence of regeneration. The very essence of what it means to be born again. To come alive from the dead. To be a very child of God. Let me show you what I mean by that. Turn back to the Old Testament with me. To Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, page 865. Ezekiel chapter 36, page 865, if you're using a pew Bible. And there the prophet Ezekiel writes, beginning in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The prophet says that the heart of stone, that is the the hard and careless heart of the ancient people of Israel, God will remove by divine surgery. And he will replace it with a heart of flesh, a, a soft and supple heart the Spirit of God Himself will do this and He will be within us and He will cause us to walk, verse 27, in the statutes of God, careful to observe His ordinances. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 8. Now it's important that we state a caveat here. A simple caveat, we are not implying or explicitly stating that that under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, that nobody had a desire for God, nobody had a proper heart relationship to God, that no Israelite had any experience of of knowing Jehovah as his God, as his Savior. We're not saying that. We're not saying that at all. Certainly the prophet Jeremiah, if no one else had a relationship with God, he was regenerate himself. He was in a saving relationship with God. So we're not saying that under the old covenant you could not know God, you could not be saved, you would not be regenerate. That's not the point. The point is that the covenant itself, get this, the point is that the covenant itself did not provide this experience. Living under the old covenant did not guarantee regeneration. It did not give new spiritual life. Many, many, many people, and we know this, don't we, lived under that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, yet they died in unbelief. They died in unbelief. They never entered into the promised land, and by extension, they never enter into the eternal presence of God. But beloved, listen to me. Under the new covenant, that's not possible. It's not possible to live under the New Covenant, to be related to God through the New Covenant and not be His child. That's impossible. The New Covenant guarantees the regeneration of all its participants. Every one of us who are related to God through the New Covenant, we are regenerate. We are believers. We are the children of God. No longer is it external but it is now internal and it is a desire to live for christ to live for god that's why one's inclinations towards the things of god is a reasonably reliable indicator of one's spiritual condition that is if you have no passion for the things of god Reading your Bible is, is completely an option or maybe not even a part of your life. Attendance among the people of God in worship is something you can take or leave and don't care less. If your prayer life is a, a, a fiction, if it's non-existent, if your discipleship is, is questionable, then what that means is that your relationship to God through the new covenant has a great big question mark over it. To be a participant in the covenant, the new covenant of God, is to be regenerate. And to be regenerate is to have the internal desire for the things of God. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you a question. Do you participate in spiritual things out of compulsion? We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 we're to examine our hearts, right? To see if we're in the faith. Ask yourself this question. Is my spiritual life characterized by duty or devotion? Do I do what I do because I have to, because I'm compelled to, because if I don't, somebody will notice? Or do I do what I do because of an internal motivation and desire for the things of God? Why do you do what you do? It's a question. Inner desire or outward compulsion? Second promise contained for us here in Hebrews chapter 8 is in verse 11. A promise of unrestricted access. Unrestricted access. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For all shall know me From the least to the greatest of them. Under the Old Covenant, the personal exposure and experience with God, as far as spiritual knowledge goes, was very limited for people. It was very, very limited. They were separated from direct access into the presence of God. Isn't that true? There was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Only the high priest, only once a year, and that with blood could enter into the holy of holies. And only the priesthood could enter into the holy place. And only a portion of the priesthood could enter into the holy place. And outside of the holy place was the court of the men. And only Jewish men could enter the court of the men. And outside the court of the men was the court of the women. And only women could enter into the court of the women. And Gentiles could come that far. And outside of the court of the women was the court of the Gentiles. And then they were out there surrounding the temple of God. So there was this series of barriers that prevented people from coming into the very presence of God and to access God himself. They were dependent on a priesthood. They were dependent on a, dependent on a priesthood to minister to them, to, to interrelate with them, to, to explain God to them and to relate God to them. Priests and prophets was how the word of God was made known to the people of God under that old covenant. There was a restricted access. Restricted access. But that's not true today, is it? Not true anymore. We live under the new covenant. That is that we have unrestricted access into the very presence of God. When Christ was crucified, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two, right? From top to bottom. It was torn open, symbolically revealing that we now, through Jesus Christ, can come unhindered into the very presence of the Creator of the universe. Something the ancient Israelite could not even conceive of. Could not even conceive of. Beloved, we have immediate and intimate knowledge of God. Immediate and intimate knowledge of God. There is no longer a privileged class. No longer a privileged class between God and His people, right? The New Testament says that as believers, as partakers of the new covenant, we are all priests. We are all priests and thus have access into the very presence of God. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, the first part of the verse, he says, I will put my spirit within you. Within you. Your access now to God is through his indwelling Holy Spirit, which allows you to come directly into his presence. Directly into his presence. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 that he has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is our teacher. The Spirit of God is our guide. He is the one who provides true and unrestricted access into the very presence of God Almighty. The Apostle John writes this way. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 27. And he says, As for you, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as He has taught you, you abide in Him. Now John is not saying that there's no need for teachers in the church. That would be self-contradictory. John himself is a teacher in the church at the time he writes this. What he is saying when he says that you have no need for anyone to teach you is that the teachers do not provide any new revelation to us, that they merely help clarify and unfold what God has already revealed to us through His Spirit. We can directly understand what God has said to us through the indwelling spirit of God who, impl- who applies both the teacher's word and a very intuitive knowledge of God through his scriptures. The scriptures, by the way, that are possessed by every believer, right? You have the scriptures sitting on your lap this morning, don't you? By virtue of that, you have unhindered access into the very presence of God. Think of it this way. When you were a child, when you were a child, you're probably one of your favorite pastimes was to pull a book down off the shelf and run over to your parents or your grandparents and hop up on their lap and hand them the book and to say, please read to me. was not that true? You wanted them to read the book to you. You needed someone to read it. You needed someone to interpret it. You needed someone to explain it to you. That's like living under the old covenant with that restricted access where somebody has to read it and explain it to you and tell you what it all means. Now, under the new covenant, you have become an adult. You take the book off the shelf yourself. You can read it yourself. You can understand it yourself. The Spirit of God in you is your teacher. He is the one who helps you and helps me to be able to understand what his word has truly said. But do we take advantage of that treasure? That's the question. Do you take advantage of the very treasure that you have? Is Scripture reading a daily part of your routine? Is it as as common as eating and sleeping and drinking? Do we take advantage of what God has given us? How well do we know the very Word of God? Beloved, the ministry of the Spirit of God uses His Word to wash us, to instruct us, to sanctify us. I can't help thinking about John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, about 600 years ago, is when he lived in England. And he got into a dispute, a squabble with a local priest about translating the scriptures from Latin into English. To make the word of God available in the English language. And by the way, you owe a great debt to this man, John Wycliffe. And in that disputation with that local priest, what John Wycliffe said is that by the grace of God, he will translate the scriptures into English so that even a common plowboy would know the word of God better than that ignorant priest. And he did. And he did. He translated them into English. Wycliffe was persecuted. In fact, he was so hated that he actually died of natural causes before they could get a hold of him. But he was so hated that later they dug up his body and burned his bones. Just to tell you how much they hated him. It is John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, that has brought and instrumental in bringing the very Word of God that you hold on your lap right now, your personal copy of the words of the living God. Available to you. Unhindered, unrestricted access into the very presence of God. Third promise complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Inner desire, not outward compulsion. Unrestricted access. Third, complete forgiveness. Verse 12. For I will be merciful. To their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the capstone of the new covenant. This is the capstone of the new covenant. This is what people need most, and what was elusive to them under the old covenant. It was elusive in, in the sense that, that the old covenant could only picture it but never. Provide it. That is, forgive and forget. The terms of the new covenant, forgive and forget. Not available to those old people. Personal forgiveness for them was always available by being contrite and obedient, by being repentant and offering the appropriate sacrifice. But there was a a repeatable nature to that sacrifice, wasn't there? Year after year, bring a new sacrifice. By the way, I didn't notice any of you bringing a goat in on your shoulders this morning. Why is that? Well, maybe you couldn't afford it, so how about a dove? I didn't see any doves either. No goats, no doves, no blood. Why? What changed? How could it be that you could come into the very presence of God Almighty? With no sacrifice. It's because one has been sacrificed for you. Isn't that true? There is one whose blood has atoned for your sin. There is one whose death on your behalf, received by faith, has completely extinguished your guilt and your sin. See, that wasn't true for them under the old covenant. There was a a constant reminder of sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 and 4 but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year for it is impossible for the bull for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin constant reminder every time you came into the presence of God blood had to be shed and it would bring it all up again all the guilt all the all that junk would be brought forward again and another sacrifice offered. You know, beloved, when God remembers sin, He is obliged by His holy nature to punish it. Do you know that? Sin cannot exist in His presence. God cannot just look the other way. God cannot just pretend that we're not unrighteous. Something has to change. And it has. And it has. That is, under the terms of this new covenant, this, this wonderful way in which God now relates to us, we receive a full and complete pardon from our sin. We receive the forgiveness and the forgetfulness, if I can say it that way, of God. The forgiveness and the forgetfulness of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Don't turn, just listen. Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. No more guilt. No more guilt. Guilt. you feeling guilty about sin? You ever experienced that? You ever feel a weight of guilt for your sin? Satan comes along and kind of whispers in your ear, you call yourself a Christian. How can you possibly have done that? Can't believe you just said what you said. What kind of filthy mind do you have? You call yourself a Christian. You look him right in the eye. You say, you're right. I'm wicked. I am wicked. I am a filthy sinner. There is no good thing that dwells in my flesh. There is nothing to commend me before a holy and just God. But listen to me, Satan. Jesus Christ died in my place. My sin has been forgiven. My guilt has been cleared. I am now righteous because I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. So Satan, bug off! And that's how you do it. That's how it's done. Probably cause a few people to turn their heads and look at you. But that's how it's done. Complete. Complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Oh, beloved, there's one more promise here. One more promise. It's actually not in this passage, but it's oh so precious. Oh so precious to us. It's a promise of Gentile inclusion. A promise of Gentile inclusion. You know, the Old Testament contains numerous indications that Messiah's blessings would flow to these Gentiles. There is no question about that. You cannot read the Old Testament. In fact, there in Genesis 12, right? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's no question that that Messiah's blessings flow to the Gentiles. But nowhere, listen to me, nowhere does the Old Testament... Indicate that God would establish something, an entity called the church, in which Jew and Gentile would be related to God on equal footing. That is a mystery. A mystery that was, that the prophets of old were unable to see and it was revealed only to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. It's a text that I will take you to. Ephesians chapter 3, page 1170. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul says there that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Oh, Paul, what's this mystery? To be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is, is that Jew and Gentile together related to God in this entity called the church on equal Footing. Equal footing. Under the terms of the old covenant, a Gentile could be related to the God of Israel, but never on equal footing. They could never come all the way in, only so close. Now we can come right into the presence of the God of Israel. Something amazing happened that night in the upper room, beloved. Something amazing. Jesus gathered his disciples together, right? Hours, just a few hours before his arrest and then ultimate crucifixion. And he made this incredible statement. Luke chapter 20, verse 22. He said in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And thus he declared the new covenant to have come. Fifty days later at Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell upon them that all might know that the age of the Spirit was now here. But let me ask you a question. How did us Gentiles get in on Israel's covenant? Do you ever think about that? How did we Gentiles get in upon the covenant of Israel? Notice in Hebrews 8, look up a little bit earlier, verse 8, where it says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. How did we get in on this covenant? How did Gentiles... Become beneficiaries of these amazing promises under this covenant. Inner desire, not outward compulsion. Unrestricted access into the very presence of God. Complete forgiveness for our sin. How in the world did we ever get these blessings? There's a promise of Gentile inclusion. We are related to to Israel's Messiah. That's the short answer. We are related to the Messiah of Israel. We are spiritually bound with Jesus Christ. And thus, we enter into the spiritual portion of this new covenant. Its full and complete implementation is still awaiting a future date. Zechariah tells us that some day the nation will turn and look on Him whom they pierced and they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son and then the nation itself will embrace their Messiah and they too will become beneficiaries of the new covenant in its fullest sense including their promised homeland. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we enter in through our union with Jesus Christ. We are grafted in Romans chapter eleven verse twenty four. Paul says we are grafted onto. We are we were the wild olive branch grafted onto the cultivated root of the Abrahamic covenant. Ephesians chapter two verse eleven. Listen, Paul says. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How do we receive the benefit of the New Covenant? It is through our spiritual union with Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is when we are united with Him that the blessings flow to us. When we embrace Christ by faith, we have the promise of the inner desire and not the outward compulsion, right? We have the promise of unrestricted access to God through His indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the promise of complete forgiveness for our sins. Beloved, my ancient ancestors were pagan idol worshippers in the wilds of Scotland. Far off from God, separated, without hope in the world. And now, by His grace, here I stand. Here I stand. Not a drop of Jewish blood in me. And yet I have become a partaker of the greatest covenant promised to Israel is now mine. I have the inner desire. I have been regenerate. I have been forgiven. I have access into the presence of God. By faith in Jesus Christ. And if He, if you've embraced Him by faith, you have access too. And you all have your stories. You all have your stories. Paul writes, "...for I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, this is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me." In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Oh, my friends. Here before us, these simple elements designed by the Lord Himself to remind us of this amazing reality. That the new covenant has come. That forgiveness is full and complete. That Christ has paid our debt in its entirety. As we take the bread and drink of the cup, may you be reminded of what Christ has done. Our Father God, only in the divine counsels of glory, could such a plan so grand as this have been conceived? There among the intertrinitarian council, the Father, Son, and Spirit, you arranged and planned that you would send forth your Son and that He would come to die to redeem a people unto Himself. And in the fullness of time, You sent forth Your Son, our Father, born of a woman, born under the law. He lived that perfect life. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Not one jot or tittle has fallen. It has all been fulfilled in Him. And yet He willingly offered Himself on behalf of His people. O Lord, we who are Gentiles, we who were once far off, separated from You and Your promises, without hope in the world, living in pagan darkness, have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been mar- made partakers of this new covenant through our union with Christ. And so as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, even now, our Father, may You renew our faith. May You deepen our love for You. May You captivate us and capture our affections even right now. May You enable us to go forth from this place, the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank Let us eat and drink and remember Him.